questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hello and welcome to the program. It's Michael and in Colorado, and I guess everywhere in the world actually, we're two days away from Thanksgiving and a happy Thanksgiving to you and wishing you a time with loved ones and a time to slow down and just rest your body and soul. Today on the program, it's a special one because we are remembering Eugene Peterson. On October 22nd, I saw on social media and in the news that Eugene, who had been in hospice care at home for about a week, had gone on to be with his friend and king, Jesus. He had uh, experienced a number of ailments and at age 86 was succumbing to dementia. Uh, Wynn Collier has had Eugene in his life as a father figure, mentor, friend, and will soon be the official biographer uh, of Eugene. Wynn has been a friend for a long time, and when I heard the news of Eugene's passing, I uh, immediately wrote Wynn to offer my condolences and asked him to take some time and think about whether he'd want to come on the podcast and simply reflect on his relationship with Eugene, helping the world and listeners uh, to know more of the man behind the title of the guy that wrote the message or the pastor to pastors who had written over 30 books. One of the great, great moments of my life was in 1996 when I was able to travel to uh, Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, and Jan and Eugene Peterson opened their home for three hours. I'll never forget they brought this contraption that made coffee, and I had never seen anything like it. You can tell, you know, how far back this was. I said, "What? what is that? The coffee is delicious. And they said, oh, it's a French press. We never do coffee without it. It was a good cup of coffee, but more than that, the conversation was amazing. That interview, a conversation with Eugene Peterson, will be available on the homepage where you download this podcast. You can click on that to receive a PDF uh, to read that interview Uh, It was not recorded in any fashion that can be used uh, today for a podcast, so you will have the written version. So as we move forward in this conversation, just know that it is um, a man who has lost his friend and mentor reflecting on the life of someone that uh, has impacted so many people through his writings. So sit back, relax, or In the case of those of you that are driving or on a treadmill, keep your eyes focused forward as we jump in to my conversation with Wynn Collier as we remember Eugene Peterson. Well, Wynn Collier, welcome back to the Restoring the Soul program, my friend. I appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you for reaching out and for caring about our shared um, admiration for Eugene. Yeah, last time you were on the program, you talked about your uh, novel and your latest book, and you were gracious when I reached out to you to really help me help the listeners to this podcast both know Eugene Peterson and also to remember Eugene Peterson. And you had not just a working relationship with him, but you had a friendship with him. 
and uh, he passed away on October 22nd of this year, and tremendous loss to the world. Uh, we lost a great saint, and I lost one of my heroes, and, and you lost a, a friend and mentor and father figure. So what was it like for you to hear uh, that Eugene passed? It, in some ways, um, took me back to a few years ago when my mother died, and uh, just this deep sense of um, someone who's ahead of you uh, being lost and gone. At the same time, I, I was prepared for it. I had a chance to be with him numerous times over the past two years and was both privileged and, and saddened to see his mental and health decline. And then certainly in the past few weeks in conversations with Eric and and leaf and just being aware of how quickly things were moving. It wasn't a surprise at the same time. It was just a, a sense of, I think for me, a sense of barrenness. Like there was this person who was in front of you who offered some kind of um, anchor, some kind of protection, some kind of um, just knowing that he existed in the world uh, was a real comfort. And knowing that he lived in the world in a different way was a uh, comfort too that it was possible. And so it, it, it's just a sense of that, that one in front of you is gone and just kind of a starkness. One of his, one of his friends, when I was at his funeral, there was a group that gathered around um, on uh, Saturday evening and were sharing stories. Most of them were regent students from the time he was a professor. And one of them just said, it feels like Gandalf is gone. <laughs> and uh, that felt um, that felt true to me. That resonates with me as well. And I only spent, I think, three hours with he and Jan one time. So that was the sum of my relationship with him and a, a few very brief notes. But when you said Gandalf, that really resonated inside. And I was really struck by the phrase you said that it feels like there's a protection that was gone. And will you say more about that? I think um, the world is just a bewildering place. And there are so many different kinds of people who came into friendship with Eugene and Jan, uh, received his wisdom. I mean, all kinds of people. And certainly pastors were part of that mix. And that was much of how I came, as many have, to, to just to see a, a kind of pastoral wisdom in him that was that was so alluring, so beautiful, so counter so instructive. And I find myself often thinking like, what, how would Eugene uh, process this? How would he walk into this? And I don't mean like trying to mimic him because actually the more I got to know him, the more I realized that that's the most dishonoring thing in the world to who Eugene was to try to copy him. So it's not about like what exactly would he say or what exactly would his opinion be trying to get things right. It's more about a way in the world that modeled for me that it's possible to live in a different way. And so just knowing that that existed was um, a sense of something that I was being called to, invited toward, and that someone else was leading the way. And so that someone else who for me was someone that I uh, have been deeply influenced by, just that, that, that it's gone, that he's gone. And there's no more letters. There's no more phone calls. Uh, there's no more conversations in his study. And so it's just a, it's a sense of, oh, okay, uh, this, this is another way that I have to step forward into the world. 
that's the word barrenness is just the one that comes to mind. It's, there's, there's a starkness now between me and whatever is ahead. A lot of the listeners uh, to the Restoring the Soul podcast may know of Eugene through the message, which is, you know, one of the last many things he did uh, over the last 20 years uh, or 24 years. When you speak of how he lived so differently, what exactly are you referring to? Because it wasn't morality. It wasn't doctrinal positions. It wasn't that he was known for a cause. but there's something very different. And what, what is that, that you would say? It's interesting as you're asking that question, it's, it's, uh, it's piercing something deep. Um, Mm. there was something Eugene knew of God. Um, there were ways that he communed with the Trinity that, is simply other than what I am familiar with. (laughs) I think it's something that I long for, even though I don't even know exactly what I'm longing for. But when I was often in with him, I just recognized, Oh, this is it. And he, he speaks beautiful words and he writes beautiful words, but I can tell you, it really wasn't the words um, it wasn't the opinions. He was actually quite reticent to give opinions about lots of things. The only thing I can I can say is that um, as I've thought about it the past week or two, this could sound to people like just a lot of hooey. I don't know how else to say it. That when I read some of the old divines, you know, when you hear about uh, read um, Gregory of Nyssa, Saint Ephraim the Syrian, Saint Francis, Mother Teresa, Saint Teresa of Avila. It, it somehow feels like Eugene was doing in our time what those people were doing in their time. Um, there was something that they were connected to in the holiness of God that was um, illuminating uh, and just drew you. And it, it felt like it was getting closer to the center of who we're intended to be as humans um, in communion with God. And, and at the same time, it's really essential for me to say, and this is what makes me know that he was in that same vein, is that it did not in any way separate him from the humanity of this world. It was like the, the more he came into communion with God, the more human he was. Mm. And I think as a Christian, because our example of communion with God is Jesus, that that's exactly uh, one of the rings of authenticity but we don't often experience that. What I have most often experienced is when people become, and I'm putting this in air quotes, more spiritual, they become somehow less human, less rich in their humanity, less able to empathize with others. And I've never encountered a person whose deep, deep abiding spirituality and love for God was more integrated and congruent with his love of the physical world, of actual people, his empathy with all of humanity. Um, and I just find myself desperate for that in my own life and in these days that we're living in. As you're talking, it makes me think, um, and I don't recall that this is a particular phrase of his, but the phrase represents so much of what he wrote about, and that is the holiness of the ordinary. Huh. 
and the holiness of the mundane. And, you know, he, he wrote and spoke so much about the earth and about growing up uh, in Montana and that he and Jan chose to live in his boyhood home or in that particular area. And I had heard recently that he hadn't watched television for years or at right. least with any consistency. So it wasn't because he was Amish, but that he was just um, highly engaged with the human life uh, that he was given that was right in front of him. Well, you think about all of the global ministry he did, the millions of books sold, the the places he was asked to speak, the numerous places he declined to speak, and all the sort of metrics that we always use and that we all say don't matter, but we all act like they do. Um, but you think over the last, some of the last years of his life, uh, I don't know exactly when this ended, but one of his most vital places of ministry, there is a Lutheran Bible camp situated directly adjacent to their property. And they loved that Bible camp. They loved this, the students who would come there. And every summer for a number of summers, Jan and Eugene, their ministry was to go over to walk over to the Lutheran Bible camp during staff orientation for all the new counselors. And they would take turns walking those counselors across the acreage of property, and they would point out all the flowers, all the trees by name. And they would say, this is this flower. This is this tree. And that wasn't like a hobby. (laughs) That was a direct expression of how they understood God being present in the world. And I don't, you know, I don't know if even all of those student counselors even knew exactly who it was walking them around, but to be present with that handful of students pointing out flowers that to him was holy work. And I just love it. Yeah. There's something so beautiful about that, that there's no, uh, no compartmentalization between the sacred and the secular and no compartmentalization between him being in a pulpit and recognized or him walking through a field with those kids. And just the, I could see him, talking, uh, just the sheer uh, joy and glory of uh, teaching about something beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. When was the first time you met Eugene Peterson? Oddly enough, the first time I met him was at a Catalyst conference that I went to, um, honestly, only because Eugene was going to be there doing a Q&A session. And I uh, walked up and just briefly met him afterwards. Then, uh, maybe a year or two later, he was speaking at a, at a small Presbyterian church in Juneau, Alaska. He and Eric, his son were co-leading this church's spiritual renewal weekend. And I had a friend who went to that church and offered up her apartment. They were going to be out of town for me to do a pastoral retreat. And I went and we had breakfast together and I unloaded on him a massive embarrassing amount of questions. And he was generous to, answer um, and try to get the bacon in his mouth as as, as, he, as much as he could. And then from there, we, we wrote letters for, I don't know, uh, a decade or so before I became his biographer. And what was that process uh, where you became his biographer? Did he specifically choose you or was it his publisher or how did that work? I went to see him uh, in 2016 and I assumed that it would be the last time that I, that I would see him. 
I just knew that he was really restricting his time. And I just, for me, it was sort of going to be a final pilgrimage, a, a goodbye. And I remember asking him to, to pray over me um, before we left. And, and he just put his hands on me and Jan was there and, and just prayed a, a tender and simple prayer. And I left and on the flight home and over the following weeks, I was just thinking, you know, this, this dear man is, um, is going to die before too long. And someone is going to write his biography. And I thought, started to think about what I would hope for his biography, that it would be someone who had been in his world and understood the way he, he saw things and lived in this world. And, and then a friend of mine said, well, you should write him and tell him those things and you should offer yourself. And I thought, I'm not doing that. And the main reason is because I knew that Eugene would not be interested in a biography. It's not something he wanted to think about. That was just not something that he, um, that he saw as a, as a need, but I did appeal to, there's a, a biography. It's, oh man, I'm going to say over a hundred years old. It's uh, the life of Alexander White by GF Barber. And Alexander White was a Scottish pastor. And this biography was very meaningful to Eugene. Um, through this biography, Alexander White became a sort of pastor to, to Eugene. Hmm. And he read this biography multiple times. And I essentially said, I, I hope, although it'd be a very different style and all that sort of thing, that I, I, I hope that a biography would be written about Eugene that would tell his story in such a way that it would be for others what the life of Alexander White was for Eugene. And so I sent him this letter, and a couple months, maybe six weeks later, he called me, and uh, his raspy voice, you know, went and... and <laughs> and started kind of talking about the weather or something. And, and, uh, and then I said, well, I guess you got my letter. And he goes, Oh yeah, it's sitting right here on the desk. And I was like, when you read that, you know, does it make you feel energized or tired? And he goes, honestly, when it just makes me feel tired, I don't know why I'd, I'd do such a thing, you know? And I was like, that's, I, that's how what I expected. And, and then he said, so, but tell me more about what, what you're thinking. And so I basically just went through it again what I was thinking. And at the end of that, he said, you know, I, I don't think I'm feeling tired anymore. I'm feeling energized. Mm. And I think this is something I should maybe put some other things aside and give attention to. And, and I honestly still don't know exactly what it was because I can tell you it wasn't about him, the vanity of having a, a biography written. Right. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that he, he was delighted by it and intrigued and all that, but I think there was just something that, I think there was maybe a thought that, that maybe his story would do for another pastor at some point, what Alexander White had done for him. Maybe um, that's how it happened. And now that he is with the Lord and gone from us, what's it like to realize that uh, the work of writing this is going to move forward? Does that feel heavy to you? Does it feel delightful? Does it feel like, oh boy, I better hit a home run to honor your your mentor? There's definitely a, a deepening sense of gravity of this, this work and telling the story well. And to be honest with you, there's definitely days where I feel like I'm went way over my head just from a, from an art st standpoint. I've, this is my first biography and I love to research, but I have thousands and thousands of pages of letters and journals and notes and interviews and you know, stepping back and trying to tell the story in a way that's both artful and meaningful and honoring does feel 
heavy. There probably is a deeper sense. I know it was a, a strange thing on the day he died. That actually was a day I was going to be writing a little bit and to all of the sudden begin using the past tense. Just that action was a, um, was a sort of a, a kick in the stomach. Um, but at the same time, I know Eugene would say, Hey, just do what's before you and give away what you have and be yourself. Um, so I hope to, I hope to do that. You know, one of the things that I wanted you to be able to do was just to share some of your favorite memories or stories. And I read a post on your blog and I'm also going to direct people to your website, windcollier.com. But you wrote a post, I think it was in mid-September, um, where you talked about the process of writing and you told a story where you went with Eugene into the crawl space under his home in Flathead Lake. And it was humorous <laughs> because, you know, you saw, you saw rat traps and there were copies of the message that were eaten away. And you, you rather humorously said that the, the rats were literally, uh, you know, taking in and eating Eugene's words. But um, what are things that stand out to you in terms of some of your interactions with him or even just stories that you've heard? Yeah. I mean, one of them is just the most human and personal thing that just that memory of opening their front door and Eugene just throwing his arms wide open and this smile would just erupt across his face and he would, you know, just sort of clasp his hands around your back and give you this hug. And it just felt like in that moment that there's no one in the world he'd rather see, you know, and, mm and realizing how many people he's done that for and how many people he's meant it as he was doing it for and how beautiful that is. Um, I think um, a couple things just quickly come to mind. One is I think you could tell a lot of about a person by his or her, uh, by their friends. And I've been struck in the process of interviewing and then uh, again struck at the memorial service about the array of kinds of persons and the depth to them and the just, it's just beautiful. And I felt so many times in the interview process, how honored I feel to be able to have a chance to meet all these people. There's just something about friendship that was really important to Eugene, even though he felt quite lonely most of his life. He always felt like an outsider. He always felt like he didn't really belong. And I think many people would think that's ridiculous. I mean, he was at the very center, Um, but that's not how he understood himself. Um, there's just such humility that is not a humility that is talked about. It's just something you encounter and you recognize it. I mean, one example would be I'm trying to remember if this is exactly true. It's, it's, I think it's a hundred percent true. I don't think in their house I ever saw any kind of reward, uh, I'm sorry, award, memento, you know, um, of sort of accomplishments in publishing or degrees he's received. There is a little closet upstairs right next to his office door. And it's literally just a tiny closet and stuffed in that closet are all the framed awards, all the publishing memorabilia, all the stuff. And it is totally out of sight. (laughs) And I think that's, that's just the way he lived. Um, it was it was um, striking to me that at his funeral there really were no or very few sort of 
church bigwigs, if you will, um, the kind of people you might would have expected to be at a funeral of someone of his stature. And I just think because that's not how he lived. He just, he really was a very common person living a very common life. And being in, in the home with Jan and Eugene, and it is absolutely both of them, you just are pulled into an orbit that you find yourself recognizing like, oh, we are living at a different speed here. And something is going on here that's not, you know, that's not what I'm used to. And yet so integrated. I loved being up in his study, which he always called it a study, not an office. To him, office um, was a word, a corporate word. To him, study was a pastoral word. And so we'd be sitting there and we would be having these rich conversations. We're surrounded by, you know, books of Bart and, and, um, Moltmann and, and uh, church fathers and mothers and just, you know, all the stuff and rich conversation. All of a sudden he'd say, stop, stop. And he would, with like, like a little child, like the wonder of a child, he would point out the window and say, there's the osprey. There's the osprey. <laughs> and, and we would just be quiet and we would take the next few minutes and watch the osprey. And this was not an interruption. It was the congruence of a life where God is appearing in all kinds of ways and in every place. And so I love that. Um, I do one of the times I went to meet him, actually, I think it was uh, before, before I became his biographer, I had a friend in the publishing industry who told me that Basil Hayden was Eugene's favorite um, whiskey. And, you know, that'd be a good gift to take him. And apparently this, this news had gotten around the publishing world. And Uh-oh. I think a, a lot of people <laughs> had bought, brought him Basil Hayden. And so I show up and, and I, and I say, yeah, um, Basil Hayden, it's, it's your, it's your favorite, right? And he's looked at me and goes, no. <laughs> and I just think it's hilarious how there's no telling how many people had shown up with bottles of Basil Hayden and, and uh, believing it was his, his favorite and, and it wasn't. Or, or maybe it was, and by then he had like 300 bottles on the back porch or something. <laughs> he wanted something different, right? Yeah, you know, that, that speaks to what you said he was not part of, and that's this, you know, the celebrity culture where, wink, wink, you know, here's his favorite thing, and, you know, take it to him as a kind of uh, token. And with him, you didn't need any of that for the relationship. It wasn't based on that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And you talked about how there was a very different speed and rhythm, but but it wasn't a speed and rhythm where you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs. There was something really compelling about his life and his marriage with Jan and their time there in Montana. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but there also was a lot of silence and you would have to reorient to the fact that silence is not wasting time. Or as Eugene would like to say, sometimes it is wasting time. We're supposed to waste time with God. I mean, he, he liked to play with words and categories. And so he would say a lot of times what we think of as wasting is not wasting at all because he would say, most of us are living by a neurosis of uh, achievement and self-effort. And we are quite uncomfortable whenever we pause and genuinely are at the mercy of God. And Eugene would say that script has to get flipped because we must, if we are to be truly human in this world, we must live under the mercy of God. And that requires 
a different rhythm. And he wrote a lot about how important our view of time is and how we can have a holy view of time or we can have an inhuman uh, destructive view of time. And I think that was not a theological point for him. That was something that was lived in his life. And Eugene's sort of core conviction, I think, about pastor, about Christian, about friend, about husband, about father, about citizen, about anything was that, that everything that is truly uh, gospel can be lived in our life. And if it cannot be lived in our life, then it's not gospel. It's not good news. And so he didn't want to speak about things if he didn't feel like it was in some way being integrated into his life. And so he could speak about holy time versus uh, unholy time because he was genuinely um, sort of imbibing this sense that he was living at a different, at a different rhythm and it was disruptive and it was healing. Yeah. How, how has his writing and his friendship been healing to you? That's a, it's a very personal question. It's also broad, but since you brought the word up, um, I know he, he's been healing to me mm-hmm. as a, a distant mentor through his writing. Um, but say more about that. I would say as a pastor, it's healing because he gave me a language for so much that felt wrong to me, but I didn't know how to to say it. I didn't know how to even, if it was okay to say it, um, because it does feel at odds so much with um, American culture. And just his his existence and his unwillingness to bend from he's super flexible guy as far as how he interacts in the world, but there were certain ways that he was just not willing to budge that no, this is the way of, of goodness. This is the way of, of righteousness and peace. And so I think he's given me a language. I think as just as a Christian, he has opened up, this is one of his favorite words, imagination opened up my imagination about what, living in the life of the spirit in this world might actually mean. And the thing that has resonated with me so much over the past few weeks as I've been thinking about it, and particularly it was, I was struck by it as I've been reading his journals is he did not use the Bible. He lived in the Bible. And I don't mean by that. He lived in it in a sense of um, in a small way, like, Oh, all he did was, memorize scripture and, and pray, uh, uh, obvious prayers. What I mean is that for him, scripture described the reality of the world. And then he saw his life coming into that. And as part of that. So even like stories that the Bible tells or metaphors, the Bible used, it was a, it was a language for him. It's like he was bilingual. And it wasn't that he was looking to the Bible to find some antidote or parable or metaphor to apply to his life. That would be too small. It was literally the world the Bible describes, the reality it describes, the possibilities it imagines, the language it uses, the metaphors were his own. So he would say things like, this is my Moab. 
This is Ephraim's bow for me. This is, and it, and it, and this is all done privately. It wasn't trying to put on some kind of hyper spiritual language to anyone. It was the world the Bible describes is God's world. And that's what he believed was true about his own world. And so for me, that, that, that invites me into um, the kind of world, the way I want to, to see the world. I want to see it not as how do I get God into my world, but how do I get in to God's world? And I don't honestly know what that means much more than that, but I want to know. Yeah, that seems like uh, something at our age that we could spend the rest of our life trying to figure out. There's there's something about it that I'm immediately drawn to, and yet it feels like a mystery. Yeah. So when you had mentioned how Eugene felt like an outsider, and when I spent time with him and published an interview, and I've read the same phrase in many other sources, he was always shocked that people would be interested in what he had done or even in his writings. I think he obviously valued what he was saying, but things like, well, I'm not sure why anybody would be interested in me or in what I'm doing up here in Montana. Did you experience that as well? Absolutely. And I think particularly as we started getting into the, the, the biography process, he would just be genuinely bewildered. You know, what, what, you know, are you going to be able to do anything meaningful with this? Is this going to help you? How, are you going to ha- I mean, why would people want to read a biography of me? Um, he really saw himself, you know, when, when he was um, first interviewing at Regent, right toward the end of the interview, uh, or before they dropped him off at the airport or hotel or something like that, he wanted a moment with, uh, with one of the deans, and he just asked, why, why would y'all want me here? You know I'm just a pastor, right? And I think in his mind, he never escaped the fact that he was uh, from a small Western town, even though he was genuinely brilliant, I believe. He never thought much of his education. Um, he didn't finish his PhD. And I think he saw himself as doing the, the most holy work that there was for him to do, which was be a pastor, but that that was small and in the big scheme of things, mostly insignificant. And that's, I think he was quite content with that. And that was no false humility. It was, it was, as you said, bewilderment and a sense of I'm, I'm not as impressive as people think I am because of what I've done. That's right. I mean, there definitely were moments where he felt like his contribution theologically, particularly to spiritual theology. He thought there were moments where he did think that his final five volumes on spiritual theology, that there was something, a unique contribution he was making, but that never seemed to bridge over to him personally. Like he just never thought that he himself was much to to look at or to think much about. Well, you mentioned those books in spiritual theology. He was actively writing uh, up until he really became um, very sick. And so into his mid-80s, he was still very prolific. For Let's wrap up with this. For people who don't know Eugene beyond the message and maybe one or two of his most popular books, where would you say somebody should start? in reading what I think are over 50 books that he wrote. Because I think story is so powerful because Eugene thought story was so powerful. I think um, his pastoral memoir, the pastor 
is a, is a beautiful place to start. I think if you're a pastor, um, I could probably go multiple places, but I'll just go with what, what was first, uh, what first gripped my heart. And that was working the angles, the shape of pastoral integrity. I think that book gives a framework and it's like pulling, pulling the scales off your eyes. And you're, and I, I found myself saying, Oh yeah, this is what being a pastor actually means. Um, I think for someone who is just trying to go deeper in, in their faith and wants to um, uh, learn more about the wide vistas of life with God, I would probably go either to um, one of the books he's really well known for long obedience in the same direction or leap over a wall Mm. is his interactions with the life of David. That's my favorite book is Leap Over a Wall. And he spends no small amount of time in that book talking about how one of his great passions in life was to uh, close the divide between professional clergy and lay people. Hmm. But, yep. uh, as, a, as a pastor was somewhat ironic as I first started to read that. Well, I want to thank you uh, for not just um, giving us information about Eugene, but for sharing your heart. Uh, I know that there's grief and real loss for you. So um, this conversation will be a blessing to many and hopefully open the door for more people to discover his life's work. When do you anticipate the biography being released? Uh, it will probably be 2020 at some point. Wow. That's it. That puts it out there on the trajectory since we're still in 2018. Well, I can't wait right. to read it. I can't wait for other people uh, to read it, not just because I loved Eugene, but because I love your writing. And you are uh, a wordsmith, and I think you're, well, I know that your words will be honoring to him. Well, thank you. I, I really hope so. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com 